You are listening to Marquette University's COVID Convos podcast. In each episode, representatives from Marquette's STEM and humanities communities will bring you insights into the pandemic that you may be missing. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnick rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin's sovereign Anishabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of COVID Conversations. I'm Paula Papadip, Professor in Exercise Science and Physical Therapy, and today I'm joined by my colleagues, Drs. Paul Gasser and Lorianne Klackow, as well as Mike Heischer, a doctoral student in Exercise and Rehabilitation Sciences here at Marquette. Our topic today is masks. Before we get started, I'll let each of you introduce yourselves. Let's start with you, Lorianne. Hi, my name is Lorianne Klackow, and I'm a Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. And my training is in virology, and I teach microbiology as well as a new course about COVID this summer. Paul. Hi, my name is Paul Gasser. I'm an associate professor in biomedical sciences. I'm uh, trained as a biologist, a cell biologist primarily, and I teach biochemistry. I do a lot of microscopy, so I talk about small-scale particles, and I taught a little bit of stuff on particulate spread in the COVID course. And Michael, you want to share some information about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike Heischer. I'm a graduate doctoral student in exercise and rehab science working in Dr. Christoph Kipp's biomechanics lab. I'm also the research lab manager at the Athletic and Human Performance Research Center, and I'm the grad student representative on the COVID-19 research initiative steering committee. Great. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm a physiologist and an exercise physiologist, and so we have a great panel. Our thoughts and actions regarding masks have changed since the days when we first started down this COVID path. We're pretty sure that faculty and staff and students have questions about masks as we prepare for students to return, and all of us, in fact, to return to campus. And there's a lot of misinformation and confusion out there that we hope we can help clear up. So let's get rolling. Lorianne, let's start with you. We seem to know a lot more about this virus now than we did even two months ago. But can you explain why is COVID-19 so dangerous? And is it really different than the flu or even pneumonia? Sure. So both the flu virus and SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, can both be spread by respiratory droplets and can both be spread by people uh, before they begin showing symptoms or who never show symptoms. But COVID-19 seems to be more contagious, more deadly. There are no FDA-approved antiviral drugs to treat it, and there's no vaccine. So unlike, say, influenza, where people can get vaccinated to acquire at least some level of immunity, and that's always dependent on how close a match the flu vaccine is with the circulating strain, no one has prior immunity to this novel coronavirus, meaning everyone is susceptible. And we know that it's more contagious because for seasonal influenza, an infected person on average spreads the virus to about 1.3 other people. This is called its basic reproduction number. And for SARS-CoV-2, an infected person on average can spread it to about two to three other people. Well, 
So, Paul, we're hearing that it's transmitted, as she was talking about, in droplets, or no, then we're hearing it's aerosol, or no, it's both. Would you explain the difference between droplets and aerosols? Sure. A lot of the confusion, I think, is, is a terminology issue, as it often is. Basically, aerosols and droplets are, are the names of two categories of liquid particles that come out of people who are infected, or they come out of people whether they're infected or not. So you could say they're all little droplets of fluid. And the names basically separate them into size categories. So the particles that come out when we breathe or talk or cough, they have a, a pretty wide range of sizes. And when we talk about the size of particles, we talk about units of measure that we call microns or micrometers. And so just to give you reference, something that probably everybody has kind of an idea of what it is, like a poppy seed. Poppy seed is very small. It's about one millimeter in diameter. That's a thousand micrometers or a thousand microns. The droplets that come out of us range from about the size of a poppy seed. That's about the biggest. Um, so a thousand microns in diameter down to about a half of a micron in diameter. So let's get back to droplets versus aerosols. The size categorization is generally agreed that droplets are particles that are greater than about 20 microns. So if anything from 20 up to 1,000 microns, that's classified as a droplet. Um, aerosols, which are often called droplet nuclei or micro droplets, they're usually thought of as anything less than 10 microns, so very, very small. And as far as what comes out of us, uh, we call them respiratory particles, droplets or aerosols. The range, as I said, is anything from a thousand down to half a micron. But the majority of what comes out are in the range of about a tenth of a micron to five microns. So most of what comes out are in the aerosol category. Okay, so these are different sized particles is really the difference between these. And where do these come from? Well, they, they come from our respiratory tract. So every time we do anything like talking, breathing, sneezing, our respiratory tract is coated with a thin film of fluid that keeps everything kind of lubricated. It keeps gas exchange happening all the way from our mouth down through the trachea into the bronchial tubes and into the deep surfaces of the lungs are coated with fluid. And that respiratory surface is constantly expanding and contracting. And as that happens, that fluid film can burst into particles. So a lot of the particles come from that process as that film of fluid bursts and reforms. And when you breathe out, then those particles that are generated in that 100% humid environment can be expired. They also can, can be formed by that kind of rapid flow of air during a cough or a sneeze of the, the air going across that fluid surface. And then another one that's really important is the vibration of your vocal cords. That's causing a lot of aerosolization and particle formation as well. So they come from us. So we have a lot of particles and liquid coming out of our lungs. All right. Is there any evidence that that's where the COVID virus is. Are they on these? I mean, can it really be carried on these drops? Yes. I mean, I think the short answer is yes. So if you think theoretically, we said the size range of most of our respiratory particles from about a micron to about five microns, the size of the virus itself is a tenth of a micron. So the virus is much smaller than even the smallest particles that come out of us. 
So most of our particles, again, are between one and five microns. The virus is about a tenth of a micron. So you could fit lots of viruses on those things. So that's kind of theoretical. But there's actually also very strong evidence that when you collect uh, these aerosols from patients using scientific equipment, you can then measure viable virus that has the capacity to infect cells in those aerosol particles and those droplets. So if I have the virus, I'm going to put all the virus, lots of virus then can go on both my droplets and my aerosol every time I breathe. Well, does that come out of me during a relaxed chat or if I'm laughing or singing? Or what about if I'm cheering on Marquette Athletics? Yes. So anything we do generates particles. So the obvious things that people always think about and probably are the things that most people think about when you talk about flu or any viral disease are coughing and sneezing. Those generate particles as well. And they generate a lot of the larger particles, but also many of the, the invisible particles that we talked about. But we know that in a lot of cases, people infected with SARS-CoV-2 are not coughing or sneezing. They're asymptomatic or presymptomatic. So the other activities that just happen all the time, like breathing, whether it's through your mouth or your nose, whispering, singing, speaking, those all generate droplets, and they generate a pretty good amount of droplets. Wow. So it seems like it's really easy to transmit this virus. I think you guys have sort of convinced me of that. What about exercise? Wouldn't people expel then a lot of virus if we're exercising and breathing heavily? You know, but... I've heard and, and seen that a lot of people don't wear a mask if you're exercising. What's up with that? Michael, you want to address the issue of wearing a mask during exercise? So that's a, a really interesting topic and an important question, I think, because we obviously know that mask wearing is going to decrease person-to-person transmission of COVID-19. Mask wearing then is important. And during high-intensity exercise, obviously, you're going to need to take in more oxygen. And so... Wearing a mask may potentially increase the work of breathing a little bit. There's some research that suggests that you may see a a little bit of an increase in the heart rate. But I think that we need to weigh those changes with with the potential benefits of wearing a mask, especially if you are going to be inside exercising. You really really should be wearing a mask because the the six-foot physical distance rule may not even apply in in that situation. There's been some research that's also shown that if you are around somebody that's exercising, you really need to be much further away than six feet. And so I guess when it comes to mask wearing and exercise, I would say that if you're going to be around other people, you should be wearing one. And even if there's a chance that you're going to come into contact with one and you can tolerate wearing the mask, you should put it on. One last important point that I think that you might be able to comment on as well, Paula, is that If you wear your mask while you're exercising over the course of a few weeks and you do it on a regular basis, you're going to adapt. And I think over time, you you may be able to tolerate wearing your mask during exercise a little bit better than when you had initially wore it. That's really a good point, Michael, that we know that people will adapt physiologically um, and that, in fact, some people train their respiratory systems by voluntarily wearing a mask to, in fact, increase the work of breathing, Uh, particularly athletes do that. So, Paul, he, Michael said something really interesting. He mentioned this six-foot, you know, distance. You know, where does that magical six-foot number come from? Is it, what is it, what's up with that? That's a great question because it's being talked about a lot. It, a lot of people now think if, if I'm six feet away from somebody, I'm safe. 
So where does that number come from? That number is really based on that early view that SARS-CoV-2 spread primarily through the large droplets. And so basically that six foot distance is basically a rough estimate based upon the average distance that these larger particles travel horizontally before they settle on a surface, before they land on the ground. So those larger particles in the, in the droplet category can travel only about three to four feet, essentially, in the air column before they land on the ground. So if you're six feet apart, you should be okay from that. So I'm not going to say spit on you when I'm talking to you if you're six feet away from me. Now, that's suggested distance is to prevent droplet spread. And so that's not breathing in a droplet. That's getting a droplet on your mouth or your face or your nose or your eye. And so that's what that physical distance kind of guideline is. It doesn't have anything to do with breathing in a droplet or an aerosol. So it is a good guideline because generally the closer you are, the more likely you're going to get exposed to somebody's droplets or aerosols. But it has nothing to do with with what the smaller particles do because the smaller the particle is, the less gravity is going to have an influence on it. And so a small particle in that aerosol range, which we know can have virus on it, is going to last and float around in the air column for a much longer time. And because gravity is not the dominant force and it's going to move around with the air currents in the area where it is. So that's why groups of people in enclosed spaces where the air is not as freely circulating have the potential. You could, you could build up significant numbers of particles. Okay. <laughs> so it's clear from what we've heard that the virus is in both droplets and in aerosol form. It's hanging out in the air after basically anyone breathes. Right, exhales, which we kind of do a lot. And yeah, and Paula, we, <laughs> I would say too, you know, I think the research shows that talking is really one of the biggest generators of, of these aerosols. So we think a lot about coughing and sneezing as being big events, but those happen a couple of times and they stop. We sit or stand and talk with each other for minutes on minutes on minutes. So if you think about a, a classroom situation or even just a casual conversation indoors, all that talking is generating a lot of, of particles. And if those particles are aerosols, they're forming clouds in the environment around us. Wow. And they're clouds that we can't see or feel. All right. And they're clearly dangerous because you're telling me they can transmit that that virus. Right. And so it's clearly really bad if this invisible cloud of aerosol virus, if we're even in it for short periods of time. So, Lorianne, as someone who studies viruses, this virus is really, really dangerous, is it? It does cause a pretty broad spectrum of disease. I mean, on the one hand, on the uh, low end of the spectrum, you have people who are infected who actually don't experience disease at all. These are the asymptomatic people. And as Paul had mentioned, even somebody who's infected but asymptomatic can still transmit this. Then you've got people who may have mild disease, so they may have fever and cough. Other people develop a pneumonia. And then in, in more serious cases, this can progress to acute respiratory syndrome, which can be fatal. So in terms of, so this can be quite dangerous. And going back to the original comparison you had asked me about, like how dangerous is this per, perhaps compared to influenza? 
both viruses, both influenza and SARS-CoV-2, can cause serious complications and be fatal. But the infection fatality rate, which is the percent of people infected who actually die of the disease, the infection fatality rate for seasonal flu is about 0.1%. And for SARS-CoV-2, while it's a bit premature to get a definitive number, the CDC currently estimates it to be around 0.65%. So that's six and a half times more deadly than seasonal flu. So really deadly, <laughs> easy to <laughs> yeah. transmit, right? Yeah. And Paul just said that standing and having a conversation with somebody generates this aerosolized cloud of virus particles. How long of an exposure, I mean, how long does that take? I mean, you know, if, if I just walk through someone's cloud... Yeah, I, it's a great question. I don't, I've never come across any published studies to determine like the minimal amount of time of exposure needed for infection, but it seems like general consensus is that contact with someone positive for the virus for about 10 minutes or more can result in, in infection. So that could be a pretty brief exposure. Like you could be standing in line at the grocery store with for 10 minutes behind somebody. But I think yeah. the key point is, is that I can't, I don't know what clouds around me, right? So because I don't know who was just in that space, is this why wearing a mask is so effective? Yeah. And I, I guess I would also point out, I think physical distancing, based on what Paul has been talking about, physical distancing should come first. But there's going to be cases where physical distancing is just not possible. Like if you have to go to class or go to work or go to the grocery store. So in those cases, Wearing a mask provides this physical barrier, when worn correctly, a physical barrier to those droplets that we're expelling. Yeah, so, I, oh, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say, I was going to ask, what, well, what, what are those particles that you were talking about, you know, what kind of a mask will filter those or stop those from coming in? Well, so, so just before I get to that, I was going to say related to what Lorianne was saying about how long you have to be in contact. You know, we're really talking about probability things, right? So the longer you're in contact with somebody in that kind of environment, whether it's indoors or outdoors, the greater your likelihood is that you'll pick up a virus. And, and Lori, I'm probably is much more familiar with this than I am, but what I've, in my reading, you know, virologists, for, me, for some diseases, you only have to have one virus to really get infected. So if you picture the particles that are being emitted by people who are speaking and your average rate of emission is about four particles per second, but that can range up to five, six times that in a, somebody who's called a super emitter a ten, and, and that gets larger with volume. So the lot louder to your kind of question about cheering on a Marquette team, the louder you are, the more you're going to emit. So, for reference, a 10-minute conversation with somebody who's on the high end of emitting at a normal volume generates about a cloud of about 6,000 droplets or aerosols. So that's 6,000 droplets that can have virus on them. And if it, the smaller they are, the deeper they can be inhaled. And if one of those has a virus, it could be getting it. Now, masks, as you said, if you have a mask on, that barrier it's pretty intuitive. If you have something in front of your mouth, you're going to be blocking at least some of those particles. What type of mask is best? I mean, should, you know, we, we hear that healthcare providers fighting for N95. Should we all be fighting for N95s or what kind of masks should we be wearing? 
yeah, three types of masks that we've probably been hearing about. So there's the N95. And these N95s are really tight fitting that actually seal to the wearer's face. And so that's going to force any wearer, any air, sorry, that the wearer breathes in to pass through the mask. And so an N95 protects the wearer from exposure to particles. And then obviously it also protects the people around the wearer from their particles. But those masks are in short supply and those really need to be prioritized for healthcare workers. So that is not what I'm, I would recommend for people to rush out and try to get a hold of these. These really need to be uh, reserved for those uh, on, on the front lines. So the next two types of masks are the surgical masks, which are more loose fitting than an N95. So there is some leakage that occurs around the edge of the mask when the user inhales. So these mainly serve to protect other people from the person who's wearing the surgical mask from their expelled droplets. These are also even in short supply. So the third type of mask, which is what most people are gonna wear, these are the cloth masks. And these would be in compliance with Milwaukee's mask mandate. These would be in compliance with Marquette's policy for mask wearing. These like those surgical masks are also somewhat loose fitting. So their main purpose is to protect others from the wearer's expelled droplets. But in terms of those cloth masks, there are several characteristics that you can take into consideration to choose your mask. Although I will say the best mask is the mask that you will actually wear. So considering a mask, you know, you can think about things like the shape. So it needs to cover your mouth and nose, the fit. You want it to fit as securely as possible to your face to minimize any gaps. So try to pick a mask that's snug, as snug as you can sort of stand while still being able to breathe. The number of layers are important. So two to three layers of fabric are better than one in terms of preventing droplet spread and also the breathability of the material. So you want a fine enough mesh that, uh, that doesn't allow droplets to pass through, but allows you still to breathe. So you can check for how tightly woven your fabric of your mask is by holding it up to the light. And if the fewer tiny holes you can see, then the better that mask is going to work to filter those droplets. Okay. So I can make my own mask and certainly there's some really good MU masks out there there's some good Marquette masks out there everyone most of those have two layers and so mm -hmm. Paul what does you know how much of a fil filtration or how much gets out of that mask or how much does it protect me well I think again it depends on what kind of mask but um, there have been some small number of studies of you know what happens or, or how effective just a cloth mask is and again it's going to depend on what it's constructed out of and all that but the studies show that um that there is a decrease in the number of particles that that are emitted a pretty substantial decrease and so that means they're effective and i think everybody can picture that right it, it makes sense it's not that the virus or the droplets have a mind of their own and can navigate through all of the little holes in the in the fabric they're going to get stuck and if more of them get stuck, then again, on that probability of infection, you're going to be dropping it down. So what we're effectively doing when we wear a mask is we're decreasing that reproduction number that, that Lorianne was talking about earlier. We're doing our part to change that kind of technical term, the reproduction number of the virus, and make it smaller. So the cloud that I would normally emit if I'm wearing a mask is smaller? Yes. Okay, great. Seems like the conclusion here is that I need to wear a mask and so does everyone else. 
right? Absolutely. And again, it, the probability thing is the more people wearing the mask, the, the lower and lower and lower the probability gets. So we're making the whole environment safer if we wear a mask. Fantastic. So you also said that when I breathe through a mask, I get viral particles on the mask. So uh, how many masks should I have? Do I wear a new one each time I go outside? Do I change it five times or ten times through the day? Or are they reusable? Who can help me with that? I would say at a minimum, you need at least two cloth masks so that you have a fresh mask if one is in the wash. But I think you really need to consider, like, how many times are you going to be leaving your house or apartment to go someplace where physical distancing might be a challenge? Because you're going to need a clean mask, essentially, whenever you go, go someplace. So if you are going to campus five days a week, you need at least five, five masks so that you always have a fresh mask. Because whenever that mask gets damp, you need to, you need to wash it because it's going to have virus on it. Yeah. So are all masks re- are all masks reusable and washable? No. So the surgical masks that I mentioned, those are designed as disposable. So when those do get wet or moist, those you do need to to throw away. Paul, what Paul, was your I thoughts? Was gonna, I was going to interject a couple of things. That, that so you asked about decreasing the the vir- the particles that are are expired when you wear a mask. The other thing that's important for everybody to know is that we now have anecdotal and experimental evidence that the masks decrease transmission and prevent transmission. So we have anecdotal reports like a passenger on a, a transatlantic flight who was in, who had COVID-19 but was asymptomatic but was wearing a mask on the plane. Nobody on that plane, even those closest to that person, ever tested positive for the virus. There was a, in the popular press, there was a story about in Missouri, there were two hairdressers who both had COVID-19, but asymptomatic. They were cutting people's hair. Uh, 120 or 140 people had their hair cut by those two people combined. The hairdressers were wearing masks and most often the the clients were wearing masks. Nobody got COVID-19. So, They work. Well, that's fantastic. But here's my favorite question. All right. Because I see this all the time. Do I have to cover my nose or just my mouth? Because, you know, if I stick my nose out, it's a whole lot easier to breathe. What do you say, Paul? (laughs) You got to cover your nose. Yeah. They're come, you know, that's part of your upper respiratory tract. This virus replicates in the upper respiratory tract. That's where your particles are being generated. And the exits are your mouth and your nose. So you got to close the exit. So I'm not even really cutting it down halfway if I cover that. And really, you know, if I cover my mouth, I breathe more out of my nose and because it's easier then. You know, that's what Michael and I were talking about. You know, you're going to exhale through the easiest way. And if your mouth is covered, you'll breathe more through your nose. And I still create a pretty good cloud, don't I? Yeah. It's like carrying your, your bike helmet instead of putting it on your head. Ooh. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I get the, that, that wearing a mask is going to protect, is going to decrease my particles. And I get that my cloud around me that I generate that other people could go into is, is going to be less. All right. So that really says that my wearing a mask protects other people. Does wearing a mask do anything for me? Yeah. I, 
there's actually initially a lot of people said, yeah, these are not effective at protecting you, but any barrier between you and the outside world could, again, probabilistically prevent a particle from being breathed in just as well as breathed out. And the fact that you can get virus detected on the outside of masks after their use means that they're, they blocked that virus from coming in. And I think that also goes with if you can wear a mask that fits snugly around your face, that's going to really even confer more protection to you as the wearer. And I did see there was a study published where they showed that actually taking the cutoff end of pantyhose and placing that over a cloth mask actually greatly increased the, the filtration of those particles to the wearer just because it made that mask then fit super snugly to the person's face. Wow. And I've seen people... You know, you can put a coffee filter in between your two layers of cloth or even paper, two layers of paper towel. Anything that, that increases the filtration really can help decrease our viral clouds and the load that we're, that we're sitting in. So as students and faculty, when you come into a room, you, know, you really want to know that people have worn a mask before you get into that space. Um, all right. Well, so, Michael, you know, we've heard that wearing a mask protects both you and, and yourself. Um, even if you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, you know, that you can be a carrier and not know it. So tell us what you've learned so far about whether people are actually wearing masks in Wisconsin. Are people getting this message? Well, it did not seem that people were getting the message in early June, Paula. So we, we did an observational study through the HBRC that was led by Dr. Sandra Hunter, and we found that most people that we observed entering retail stores around the Milwaukee area we're not wearing masks. So only 41% of the over 5,000 people that we observed were wearing masks when they entered the stores. And so, you know, obviously that's significantly lower than we want to see. And as, you know, Paul and Lorianne kind of talked about earlier, the more that we can bump that percentage of mask wearing up, the more we can bump the re reproduction number of the virus down. The 41% wearers, who were they? So in general, we looked at location, age, and then gender as well. And so we found that we found that females wear masks more than males. And in general, you know, if you see some of the, the survey data that's come out across the country, that's, that's pretty consistent. For whatever reason, it just seems like men don't feel as though they need to be wearing masks. I don't know if it's a, a masculinity thing or a perception that it's, you know, making them look weak. But I think it's it's really just important to to note that the virus doesn't care if you're a male or a female or if you're younger or older, and that we all need to work together on this. What about young people? What about age? Did you find it, see anything? The age findings that we had were really interesting. Younger individuals wear masks less than middle age and older adults. And so to me, that's particularly concerning because there's some evidence that younger individuals are more likely to be asymptomatic. As we kind of talked about earlier, you know, if, if younger individuals are not wearing masks, but they're asymptomatic and they're walking around creating all these virus clouds, that really creates a problem for containment of the virus. And so making sure that younger people are wearing masks in addition to those more vulnerable, older populations is really important. So it's a thing. It's not just one age. So it's not just about protecting the old people, us old faculty um, on campus. It's about protecting all of us. So I see that both of our speakers, um, both of the guys, um, have facial hair. 
And so do you think that's do you think that's a problem when you wear masks? It could be. I don't know. I, I mean, it's it's going to change fit if you're wearing a tight fitting mask. It's going to work better. But most cloth masks aren't really that tight. So I don't know that they make a difference. They definitely if you're wearing a medical kind of mask, you have to be shaved pretty pretty much for it to fit properly. But if you're wearing a cloth mask, is it is it more uncomfortable for you guys? No. No. no? Okay, so that I mean, so that's yeah. so you can't you can't use that as an excuse, huh, fellas? No, no, no definitely right. not. Mike, what's uh what's next up for this research? Research well, that was this was before the Milwaukee mandate, right? What's that? Are you going to look at this again to see what if its behaviors changed now that we have a mandate? Yeah, really interesting. So we collected this data at the beginning of June, and so that was obviously, as you mentioned before, some of the mandates have been in place. And now some of the stores that we have visited have put in mandates nationwide. And also, you know, we have the Milwaukee mandate. And the news actually just came out today that we have a, a state mandate now. So um, we are going to collect some data just to see how things have changed since the, the mandates have been put in place. And then we are also thinking of looking and going back after the mandates have been removed to see if the period that the mandate has been in place has kind of encouraged people to change their behavior. All right, then. Related to that, I know that um, Texas, uh, the governor of Texas, you know, in the past had finally issued a, a mask mandate for something like 20 counties because Texas was having such a hard time and not magically, but uh, as expected, that curve has, has started to level off and come down. And the only thing that changed, it wasn't a shutdown, it was a mask mandate in part of the state. So That's we, great news. So yeah. it works. So That's it's pretty it. convincing. It is pretty convincing that masks work. Also, it's pretty convincing that the virus is plentiful and easy to transmit and that you can transmit it even if you're asymptomatic or you don't know it, okay? And that it can be very dangerous and deadly. We still do not know why some seemingly perfectly healthy people get terribly sick and some die. We know that you can carry it and transmit it to family, friends, and professors without having any symptoms and that you have no idea how people will react when they get it. So this raises an important question. What will Marquette's policy be regarding masks when we all return to campus in a few weeks? Lorianne or Paul, you want to speak to that? They will be required. You need to wear a cloth face covering when you are on campus. I think that sounds like a good policy right now after what we've been talking about. So I think we're pretty much out of time. This was all really informative. I think we could summarize by saying masks should be looked at as a mild inconvenience to ensure that we're really able to get control of this virus and pandemic. Sort of like a no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service policy. If we really want to return to school, to our jobs, go out to movies, concerts, basketball games, and to life as we knew it before 2020, then the one thing that we can all do, it's pretty cheap if you think about it, take the t-shirt and cut it up, all right? The one thing we can do to help is to wear a face mask, to cover your nose, and your mouth whenever you are within 10 feet you think that's a good number 10 feet right yeah. 10 feet um, regardless of how you actually feel and of course don't forget to wash your hands thanks to all of our moms for that piece of advice <laughs> wearing a mask protects your friends your families and their families your professors it protects the people you may never see or know it is really living the care for the person that we live as a motto here on campus. It protects Marquette, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
and beyond. It's a simple act of kindness that may let us all stay together. I want to thank our panelists today for their time and their expertise. Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID Convos. You can learn more about this podcast and the research being done at Marquette University by visiting the Research and Innovation website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at covidconvos at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is Phase 2 by Zylo Zyko.